Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio, talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan and I'm joined today by Amanda. Hey, what's up? And Rich. Hey, gang. In starting this show, we set out to tell the stories of workers. We do this in part because we feel those stories aren't told enough in the U.S. and get buried underneath more prominent tales of business owners and capital. Perhaps the most pervasive of these stories is what we're calling the myth of the entrepreneur, this idea that the founders of businesses are scrappy underdogs and heroes who embody America's ideals. This is a narrative that has deep roots in this country. Our episode last week was about work and fiction. Horatio Alger's stories about self-made men are in many ways the template for what we're discussing. And I think, Rich, you can sort of speak to the roots of this and how deep it goes. Yeah, so the ideal of the, the self-made man, you know, gendered on its face. It's very much white men uh, setting out to conquer a frontier. Uh, so it's also intimately tied in with the, the idea of imperial conquest of uh, the North American West. Uh, so the self-made man was this ideal of a person who by his pluck, uh, his courage, and his energy could transform the empty spaces of, of the West into capital and wealth and independence. Uh, so of course this ideal was always a sucker's bet. It was never the, uh, the independent farmer or the independent uh, artisan who made money in the West. It was the landed speculator. Uh, the, the connected politician and businessman who owned the vast tracts of land, who made you know the money from uh, from this settlement, uh, but the idea was intoxicating. You could be independent and wealthy uh, through your commitment to uh, improving yourself and improving the land around you. And I think we still see that ethos in action with the the cult of the entrepreneur. Uh, it's a promise that you can conquer a tech frontier. You see that language still, these pioneers of, of tech still using that language. And then I think broadly you see it uh, in these multi-level marketing schemes as well. Um, in this case, the frontier being white suburban women, uh, this empty vessel of powerlessness that uh, this business can fill. Um, and so again, on its face, you can see uh, there's power relationships here that people don't or people can't acknowledge. Uh, in an attempt to achieve power through um, being the ones to fill these vacuums, filling these empty spaces, however defined. So it's the the frontier ethos just modernized, brought forward to uh, the modern economy. And it's sort of uniquely American, isn't it? Because, I mean, Britain doesn't have a frontier. You know, France doesn't... By the time of, you know, the Industrial Age, the French... They were not exploring the outreaches of France. They had found them all. I wouldn't push this as necessarily an American exceptionalist story, but I do think uh, there's a lot of resonance here, as you know, in you know the American context. Uh, you know, certainly colonialism and you know imperialism generally were uh, were you know international national uh, stories. Um, and I think the the cult of the entrepreneur has. Uh, has a global reach as well. It's not just Americans who are intoxicated by the, the, the pull of this. It's it's anyone implicated in global capitalism. Um, you know, Amway, for instance, will be talking about their markets are aren't really an American ones anymore. They're they're spreading their reach globally because they basically tapped out uh, Americans interested in Amway. So uh, I think there is a, a a broader appeal globally to this this ideal. <clears throat> Okay, so we're talking about Amway and multi-level marketing companies more generally. Um, they are, I kind of thought of these as like what happens when you take the mythos surrounding entrepreneurs and you really like empty it out, totally hollow it out and like have craven people taking advantage of like weaponizing it um, really effectively to take advantage of like more vulnerable people and uh, very naive people and people that 
kind of buy into the myth and aren't people who are pe- more vulnerable. Yeah. So how multi-level marketing works, I just wanted to briefly kind of um, explain it is, so you've got a seller and they're kind of an independent distributor. So they buy inventory from the company. So if we're talking about Amway, they're going to buy cleaning products. Or if you're talking about Mary Kay, they're buying lipsticks or LuLaRoe, they're buying leggings. And so they're they buy it and they try to sell. And so the, every sale they make, they're going to earn a commission on the sale. But how you really are going to make your money is you want to maximize the amount of people that you recruit. So everybody under you, you also get a commission on everything they sell. So inherent in that structure is the people at the bottom of the pyramid are the most exploited. They're, you're literally making money off them, and the people at the top are the ones that are making uh, accruing all the profits. So Sound familiar? Yeah. It's, it's this basic <laughs> structure of capitalism in miniature. And the language they use, they vary, they pitch themselves as kind of vehicles to, for people to achieve economic freedom. Like if you work hard enough, if you network enough, that's a really important thing. Um, they often encourage people to commodify social relationships, which is in capitalism happens a lot, but it's, it's very blatant and very um, disturbing the extent to which they encourage that. But um, so if you hustle enough, um, you you can like you can you can be the top one percent. You can have the Cadillac. You can have um, the giant mansion. You can and you you can't. Accord, uh, there's a good statistic that I found. Um, according to an FTC study of 350 different MLMs, 90 percent of people that participated in this lost money. 99 percent. That's not. They didn't break even. That's they lost money. It's, it takes advantage of that, that specific American desire to... Uh, Set um, out on your own. Yeah. Be your own boss. That's the, yeah. that's the catchphrase a lot of these, these multi-level marketing schemes use. Uh, it, so it's using uh, dissatisfaction with capitalism uh, and work relationships under capitalism to perpetuate capitalism, to create an explicitly capitalist pyramid structure. Um, and to make it, you know, in a very intoxicating and alluring way um, that, you know, you can you can be independent, you can work from home, um, you can make money um, doing what you're doing anyway, living in a community, having friends, having relatives, um, but like Amanda said, commodifying them. Um, so it, it kind of smooths out the rougher edges of capitalism or is, seems to, uh, while in fact... Uh, expanding it uh, and use, uh, infiltrating our everyday communities or everyday relationships in a, in a way that, you know, is very uh, destructive, I think. As Amanda said, nobody makes money on these. Uh, what they get from it is a kind of, you know, emotional or uh, I don't even know how to define it, a uh, religious even uh, kind of uh, claim to autonomy. Now, both of you had said something that honestly reminded me of my experience in college, just being taught that you had to network with, you know, your fellow students. You know, college was an opportunity to build your own brand. And it always struck me as sort of inhuman in a way, sort Mm -hmm. of. I mean, I'm the the phrase I always said was, you know, I'm not a brand. Coca-Cola is a brand, you know. And then when you got to sort of the idea of the dissatisfaction with capitalism and the idea of being your own boss, Mm -hmm. well, college in many ways sells that vision. You know, college in this country is, I've heard it phrased, um, it's a way to avoid the majority of the jobs that exist. (laughs) Um, You know, you go to college because you don't want to deal with the drudgery of, you know, washing dishes or stocking shelves it's your way out and i think it touches on a lot of these same ideas the sort of the notion that setting out on your own is the solution to society's problems well um when you kind of talk about that it kind of makes like all all 
a lot of the myth surrounding this is that you can kind of like claw your way out if you try hard enough and that there are opportunities and if you don't take advantage of those opportunities it's on you not on anybody else and, and you as an individual will be the one to escape this alone yeah right make or break yeah and that's kind of we, you know as if we think we're thinking systemically um we know <laughs> that the opportunities under capitalism are much more related to have you won the birth lottery and are you basically are you lucky enough to get opportunities not not it has nothing to do with the hard work or um you know your per personal traits that you have it's much more um you know chance than mm -hmm. anything else there was a line um you had shared an article with us about LuLaRoe, this company that sells leggings to suburban women. And there was a line in that that stuck with me, you know, um, if if you fail, it's not the system that's broken. It's you haven't tried hard enough. And while that's specifically what was told to those who are struggling to make ends meet under this, it also is very much the message told to all of us in the U.S. under capitalism. It's sort of that is the line from those who would protect the status quo. It's, it's, we're, we're kind of told that it's a meritocracy, that you, when you have, when you achieve some kind of status or wealth or whatever you've earned it and you deserve it and you really haven't, you know, it's, it's, it's accidental. And let, I mean, let's think about who heads these companies. Are they, are they self-made people? Uh, no, they're primarily white men. Uh, you know, LuLaRue is an, an interesting exception. There are Mary Kay, also founded by women, but by and large, uh, not just these multi-level marketing companies, but also, um, you know, these tech companies are uh, helmed by white men from privileged circumstances to begin with. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, is a classic example. Dropped uh, out of Harvard. Dropped out of Harvard, you know, already from fairly prosperous background, and now he went from being rich to being disgustingly rich. You know, that's that's how he, his self-made man climbed the ladder. He was already at the the top of the pyramid. Now he's at the, you know, the you know the the point of the pyramid, perhaps. You know, that's that's the kind of advancement capitalism pr uh, promises. Um, so if you're not you're not already at the the top of the pyramid of the pyramid scheme, if you're not already at the top of the pyramid of of capitalism period, you're not advancing um, anymore by design structurally. No matter how much they tell you you're not working hard enough, or no matter how much they're telling you, or even you know no matter how much how hard you're working, it doesn't matter. You know, like Amanda said, it's not a meritocracy. It's not about hard work. It's about where you're born uh, and where you already are in the system. Now you had talked about the tech industry, and I think. Th these stories, this self-made man idea is very pervasive in Silicon Valley and in tech, and mm -hmm. that's something we can get into more after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Hello, welcome back. Um, this is Punching Out. We're discussing uh, entrepreneurship in American society and sort of this broad narrative where the entrepreneur is, you know, our society's heroes. And I think nowhere is that seen more than in Silicon Valley and in the world of technology. Yeah, so you see uh, this ideal idealization of uh, these so-called self-made men you know that these uh, these people like travis kalanick or did i say that name right yeah all right yeah. close enough yeah. i don't care who he is uh or you know mark zuckerberg or uh you know any any other really i, I don't care about that. elon musk is another classic one travis uh, kalanick being jeff the um, yeah bezos. jeff CEO bezos of uber, uber yeah very um you know they they, they 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 deploy these sort of positive sounding energetic words like disruption or um um, innovation innovation uh you know these these ideas of uh you know we're going to take this established order and break it up and make it something better and more efficient uh but in practice they don't do anything they don't make anything uh they don't uh, produce anything 
And in practice, what these apps and what these tech companies are are things that already existed, uh, but they skirt labor laws. Uh, you know, that's that's basically the gist of of what they do. Yet they're just showered with money, billions and billions of dollars from uh, this capitalist class, desperate to find things to put their money into that's aren't you know aren't workers. Um, uh, you know, so even though they never make money uh, because they tap into, in fact, they lose money by the the fistful, millions of dollars. None of these things have ever made any actual money or things. Even Amazon doesn't pull a profit. No, by design. You know, he does, Jeff Bezos doesn't care if Amazon ever turns a profit. He only cares about, um, you know, continuing to pull in more money and pull in more investors. Evaluation of the yeah, company. the evaluation of the company. Yeah, the the, the shareholder values the the point of these things. Um, and so, you know, we we see here, you know, it's it's all, you know, just like with these these multi level marketing scams, they're illusory. Uh, nobody makes money on these things, uh, but the point is to uh, is not to make money. It's to uh, shovel money up uh, to the very top of the company, to the the actual people at the at the top, just like on the pyramid schemes, uh, on the backs of uh, you know the suckers. So you know, in the multi level marketing scams, it's the people down line, and these apps, it's. Uh, you know, in Facebook's case, the people who use Facebook were being monetized as, you know, sources of, uh, you know, targeted advertisements. Or in the case of Uber, uh, I think most noxiously, it's the the drivers. Uh, so maybe that's something we can talk about how, you know, that plays out. Um, yeah, I, I think Uber drivers are sort of a great example of this because they are um, growing more prevalent and no more successful i would say they um there are stories you can find about uber drivers sleeping in their cars Mm -hmm. you know because they can't make rent you know they can only afford cars which are often loaned to them under shady terms by the companies themselves yeah itself and one of the things um that kind of uh has has evolved from this is is these like um, working for Uber is kind of pitched as this like exciting um, uh, run your flexible scheduling mm-hmm. like you know this, you can do it whenever you want it's you have freedom you in choice and all these like capitalist buzzwords that kind of in the same vein as like innovation and disruption that kind of you can never really define like you know they're abstract enough so you never really know what's freedom I mean I I would define freedom as um, you know, getting a livable wage, say, but they're kind of trying to pitch freedom as you know, you, you working for, you know, um, from the hours of eight p.m. to midnight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom for me would be maybe a twenty-hour work week max, uh, but freedom for them is work your regular job and then work another forty hours on top of it. To you can get twenty hours. It's just you'll need another job. Right. Well, sure. Yeah. They're the. 20 hours full-time, you know, job. That's my my, my minimum achievable goal in my lifetime, maybe, but... So I think what you see with Uber is sort of the way our glorification of these entrepreneurs and capitalists and the real human toll it has on workers at the bottom. Um, It's... The conditions aren't great with Uber and they aren't better, really, in so many of these other gig economy apps. So yeah, Uber in particular is taking advantage of, you know, not just your labor, but also your property. So by and large, you know, people are, you know, it's pitched to people who already own their own cars. You know, Ryan, you had mentioned, you know, already that sometimes, you know, there are companies that'll lease you a car for Ubering, which, you know, just adds another layer of exploitation on top of it. But by and large, it's your own car. So you're responsible for maintenance. You're responsible for keeping it clean. You're responsible for, um, you know, everything that goes into keeping the car's appearances up. And, of course, you're not being paid for that part of it. This is unpaid labor uh, for Uber's benefit and, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for your own rating, you know, such as it is. These jobs don't have health insurance. They don't have any kind of, like, any of the social safety net type things that you you really – that private employers – have kind of stopped providing and especially in that business model that Uber has where they have no responsibility to take care of you at all. 
more and more we're seeing the responsibility for these sort of pressure points, whether it's your health or, you know, your, you know, your work schedule is put on the individual. It's put on the workers and sort of as opposed to the companies themselves and the safety aspects of it. I know, uh, I mean, Uber is famously, they offer car rides, but there are tons of startups that now offer bike deliveries of like things like food and groceries. And in New York City, uh, you've seen an increase in the number of bikes being hit by cars as a result. It's sort of, it's putting more and more risks on the workers themselves. Yeah, if you get into a car accident, if you get into a bike sac- bike accident while working for Uber or for Seamless or whatever, you're, you're not entitled to workers' compensation because you're not a worker. Uh, the, you know, yes. yeah, technically, uh, you're a con- you're an independent contractor, but of course, it's nonsense because you are a worker. You work for Uber, you work for Seamless. Uh, it's just a mystification that obscures your relationship to them. You know, that's all it is. There's this another episode phrase. I I think it's Steve Jobs, but it's this whole idea of do what you love, which is right. pitched to a lot of people in my generation. And it's, I mean, one, it sort of it evades the fact that I mean. There are a lot of things that society needs that, well, aren't lovable. Uh, janitors, I don't, I mean, some people may love the job of, you know, cleaning up, but it's it's not what is intended when people say, do what you love. And it's oftentimes this, you know, love of what you're doing is an excuse to get people to do things for less money. It's, um, there are whole industries you know, predicated on, people willing to take unpaid internships because they want a foothold in the industry Mm -hmm. that they enjoy. And again, avoiding sort of the drudgery of a normal job. Well, it's, it's, it's half the phrase, right? It's do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, it's turning work, uh, from what it is, which is, uh, an expression of energy to the benefit of someone else to, uh, again, that entrepreneurial ideal, the expression of energy and talent and creativity uh, toward the benefit of yourself. And it sounds, again, appealing. It's alluring. You're independent. You're generating your own wealth. You're doing what you love. But in practice, what we see, you know, anywhere in these, uh, in this society is uh, the money going up the ladder. Uh, You're not, the work you're doing, the creativity you're contributing to these companies isn't for your own benefit as much as they might like to sell it to it. You know, this dream uh, for you, it's, for the benefit of the system, for the company. It's sort of insidious in a way, this idea that, you know, you'll never work. It sort of, it it purposefully buries, you know, what work is, what mm-hmm. work means, and it's in a way that doesn't benefit workers probably 99% of the time. It encourages self-exploitation. It encourages you to uh, work extra hours, to not work on the clock, uh, to uh you know, work for the benefit of the company or the founder uh, of these companies who are often these kind of messianic figures or certainly they market themselves as these messianic figures, um, you know, with the hope that one day you too will be the successful uh, entrepreneurial figure. It also encourages you to ask less, like, in the same way that it encourages you to exploit yourself, like you said, um, it also encourages you to ask less of society as a whole and to look our stand. It's a race to the bottom. Our standards are always, we're always lowering our standards um, for like, you know, I'll, oh yeah, it's fine. Um, I love this, this app development or whatever so much that I'll, you know, I'll put up with, you know, work with working for a less than livable wage just because I really love this. But in reality, then everybody's kind of getting pushed down to that same ground level and eventually you know there's there's a there's a bottom line and i think we're close to reaching it in term, i hope anyway yeah it's uh, whenever there's sort of a more exploitable population whether it's uh illegal immigrants in some cases or just people who love what they're doing so much that they're willing to do it for free they are used they are exploited and that in turn justifies the exploitation of others because they can point to, hey, that person's not getting a salary. Why should you? 
and it's all pitched on this idea of empowerment and Mm -hmm. pitched on this idea of, you know, being your own boss, like we've said, and the idea that all this is, you know, again, it's freedom in the most perverse sense of the word. There are, what was that, um, was it an Uber ad or a Fiverr ad? Fiverr or something like that. Uh, You know, one of these fly-by-night operations that nobody will remember in a year, but, you know, are so absolutely slathered in venture capital um, because they exist and because the people who own them are are rich to begin with. Uh, This company, whatever it was, who cares, uh, posted an ad in, in the subways in New York City that was something like, you know, your lunch is coffee, your... Uh, you work from eight to eight, you're a doer. Uh, and that captures the, again, the kind of ethos is you're putting your energy out there, you're hustling. And what these apps do is encourage your hustle. Uh, you know, it's for your benefit, right? To be a hustler, to work anyway. You'll get the extra money. You'll get the benefit of being independent. You'll get the the benefit of the freedom of being your own boss. Again, that's, again, what these apps are tapping into, that ideal of, um evading capitalism, skirting the edges of capitalism to be the one who benefits from capitalism, to be the one at the top of the pyramid. That's the goal of these these apps, just like it's the goal of these multi-level marketing schemes. So one of the, the kind of the implication of even using the word hustler is kind of acknowledging, I mean, in capitalism, we are always, we are obviously always in competition with one another yeah. for resources, for, you know, jobs, for whatever. But it's that kind of, basic social structure is so is so destructive and um you know it 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 it's it echoes through you know um it echoes throughout our society in a way that makes it almost um toxic yeah toxic and you know why would we want to encourage people to be competing with with each other constantly we want to encourage community and respect and like um, you know that, kind of and, and let's think about how Uber tracks its non-employees, its its non-workers. It's through these ratings that the the people they uh, they ferry around cities uh, give to them. If you fall below a certain number on that rating, which is utterly arbitrary, you know, if the if the person in the car didn't like you, if you're of a different race, um, so this is something that's already being tracked. Is you know, people of color, Uber drivers of color, get lower ratings than white Uber drivers. Um, you'll fall below the certain number and then Uber won't let you work for them anymore. Won't let you work for, you know, or not work for them anymore, you know, through the app. Um, And so, you know, like Amanda's saying, this competition serves to undermine community and also to perpetuate already existing social structures of capital as we've seen, but also the things that are tied into it, race, gender, um, sexuality, you know, the other facets that all, you know, tie together to create and perpetuate these these structures, these hierarchies. Did you see this story a couple of weeks back? Um, some new startup, probably founded by four identical looking guys named like Thad or something. Blake. Um, they had proposed like making those sort of Uber ratings stick with you throughout your career in the yeah. gig economy and this sort of dystopian Black Mirror style you know, have it hovering over your head no matter where you go. It's um, it's all very, um, I mean, dystopian again, but it's, I don't, it's not the future I want. It's, it's noxious. It's anti-human. Uh, it doesn't allow people to have bad days. You need to be constantly hustling, constantly smiling, constantly providing service. That's exhausting. It's exhausting. And as, as capitalism is in all facets, you have to work yourself to the bone in order to survive. I think that's a good place to take a break here. Um, We'll be back. Are you someone that you're ready to be an innovator? Have grit, be a disruptor, and listen to Punching Out while working your 9 to 5. Listen while you're working your second shift on your way to your Uber gig. You can listen on SoundCloud and iTunes. Do it often. Leverage your social synergies and share us on Facebook and Twitter. Punching Out, because you're someone. Welcome back to Punching Out. Um, talking about entrepreneurship, and now I want to shift to sort of the ancillary industries that surround entrepreneurship. Not not necessarily the actual entrepreneurs themselves, but 
the self-help industry and the books and seminars that preach this message to would-be entrepreneurs at high cost, generally. Yeah, that's one thing that strikes me as, as you know, kind of mining this topic for this episode is the way entrepreneur becomes an identity. You know, the same way someone might have been like a steel worker or a or even a, a boss in in a past generation. Now, uh, entrepreneur has its own kind of social standing, like with all those positive you know, traits we talked about in the pre- the previous segment. You're a disruptor. You're an innovator. You're someone who uh, is your own boss and is independent and is making your own uh, making their own way in the world. Uh, but despite that, despite being an entrepreneur, it's clear that this is not something you can do on your own. You need help. And as Ryan's about to share, help exists in this form of this self-help industry uh, out there to help you help yourself. If you almost certainly know somebody who has a book like this on their shelf, there's a whole swath of them. And these uh, from Forbes are the 10 best books for entrepreneurs in 2017. And we only need to share the titles here because they are... um, very much on brand. Um, number one, all in. Number two, tools of titans. <laughs> number three, disrupted. Number four, idea to execution. We um, thought that sounded like a John Wayne Western movie. Uh, number five, unbreakable by Tony Robbins. Number six, grit by Angela Duckworth. Number seven, The Third Wave. Number eight, Pivot. Number nine, Be Obsessed or Be Average, which seems darker than most of these titles. Yeah, that's very dark. Number 10, Big Magic. (laughs) Big Magic. (laughs) So you get a sense for the style and the whole tone surrounding all this. There's... This idea where you need you need seven tips to help you become your own person in a way. The rhetoric is it sound it's very it, it sounds like it means something. It should mean something. You're listening to this grasping kind of at the edges of meaning, but it's so hollow and empty. It's there's no there there. There's nothing, yeah. It's um it's all I mean I've never been to one of these things, so maybe they're more substantial than I'm imagining. But they're not. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> how many t- ways can you use the term disruption? I mean, it, it, again, it gets into this idea that entrepreneur is an identity that's available to you because what these things are preaching are a, a self-transformation. Uh, that obsession one's a great one. It needs to be totalizing. You need to be a person of grit. Uh, a person of commitment to this, you know, this cause or this ideal. And if you are obsessed, you will be average. Right, yeah. The threat, in a way. And how bad you'd be average. Nobody, nobody wants to be the person who makes up the majority of the bell curve. You have to be at the the outlying, preferably the positive end. And I think, to some extent, that reflects. I mean, what the majority of the bell curve endures, because. There's a reason why so many people want to get out of that majority, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's why this, this industry exists. You're filling your time by desperately seeking ways to escape uh, the drudgery of uh, of work under capitalism. Uh, and the way you escape work under capitalism is by being a capitalist. Uh, a capitalist, yeah. Be, being the person at the top of the pyramid, being the person uh, upstream of the of the pyramid or whoever, whatever nonsense language Amway uses uh, to, you know, market their pyramids. It's all toward the same end. It's being uh, outside capitalism by being above capitalism, uh, which of course means being the ultra capitalist. So um, I actually wanted to read this passage from a Matt Roth article in the Baffler that's about Amway. Um, and this special event they have called Dream Night, and you're gonna, I'm gonna read it, and it's, it, it kind of describes the author is, is experiencing this, and um, you're gonna um, kind of uh, hear how like rhetoric and imagery that's distilled from like this 
capitalist projection of like the American dream and how entrepreneurship is the um, uh, how the ideal yeah the ideal how entrepreneurship is the ideal um, and how it's it's capitalized on to um, you know trick unsuspecting people who really just um, want to make some money uh, so what is your dream demanded a booming voice the ballroom went dark and the audience settled in for a 15-minute video catalog of the stuff dreams are made of a blur of luxury cars sprawling mansions frolicking children pristine beaches hot dogging jet skiers private helipads and zooming jets all set to caffeinated john teshi instrumental music the voice returned it's about family a shot of kids collapsing on an oceanic lawn, love tackled by dad. It's about security, a shot of a palatial house. It's about you, a close-up of toes gently lapped by the incoming tides wriggling in the white sands. This was Dream Night, and it was about Amway. Dream Night was not the first Amway event I had been to, but it was the most hallucinatory. It began with the triumphal entrance of the Amway diamond couples, half jogging through a gauntlet of high fives to the theme from Rocky, as the audience whooped and hollered and twirled their napkins over their heads. When the standing ovation finally tapered off, the MC offered a prayer thanking God for A, the fact that we lived in a free enterprise system where there were no government agents kicking down the doors of meetings like Dream Night, and B, his blessed son. Maybe capitalism has finally reached the stage of self-parody, unblushingly celebrating a house of cards as its highest achievement. And maybe Dream Night, instead of being the ritual of a fringe cult, is the vanguard of the future. Yeah, I think I think that really captures nicely your, your point that this is all very, very hollow. Uh, it takes you know things with very deep meaning, security, community, family, and projects them in the image of consumer items, commodities, giant McMansion, uh, huge expensive car, vacation to some beach somewhere. Uh, you know, again stuff you can buy uh, that really epitomizes achievement at the top of the pyramid. Can we talk about Amway for a second? Because I had heard of it. I knew it was vaguely scammy. But until reading this article, I didn't know what it was they actually sold. And apparently it's everything. Very low quality everything. It's uh, like be your own personal Sam's Club from yeah. the sounds of it. You get these giant boxes of... Everything you could need from toothpaste to breakfast cereal. Yeah, soaps, couches, everything. But unlike with Amazon where, you know, at least there's this centralized hierarchy managing uh, the distribution of goods, it's managed through whoever's above you on the pyramid. Uh, so it's very low quality stuff. It's very inefficiently distributed. And I think the point of the article and the point of Amway is, of course, it's not that's not the point. The point of the company isn't to sell or distribute goods. This stuff's very low quality, and it's, you know, like I just said, inefficiently distributed. The point is to uh, develop your pyramid, develop your downline, because uh, that's where you're actually making your money. Uh, it's it's through bringing, bringing fellow entrepreneurs into uh, the structure of sales to themselves sell more, and that's who you're, you know, you're selling to. It reminds me sort of of, are you familiar with Soylent, this weird mucusy substance that tech folks are – treating as food now yeah they're, they're they've replaced all their meals with soylent which you can get all your nutrients from but it it's i mean it's vaguely inhuman and the name well, the name itself is taken from a movie where the food is humans i was just gonna say you know how dystopian I mean, this all is it invites those comparisons just from the name and it in in a way Amway wants to be as all-consuming as that. They want to replace everything you own with what they have to sell, and it's not good stuff. Well, you heard in the in the um, passage that we read that um, it kind of it uses it. It feels like a cult, and it uses a lot of almost religious rhetoric. Not almost, just explicitly religious, religious. Yeah, uh, rhetoric to kind of you know, draw you in and can, and kind of imitate almost like this whole, this like the wholesome, like real, like things that society should be striving for, which is, you know, like family and, and community and things to just convince you that this, it, it's, it's, it's like an imitation of life. Like you said about Soylent, it's like, it's very. 
it replaces the necessities of life with Amway uh, in terms of both the material products and also in terms of our social relationships with one another. Uh, it takes our friendships, our family networks, and makes them part of the Amway downline. I feel like if an author had wrote a book describing this in the 1920s, we'd teach it in high schools as a dystopia. We would say, you know, this is something to be avoided. It's brave new worldian in a way. Um, those dystopias of the past, I mean, they always describe sort of totalitarian governments. And what we're seeing now, and I think in modern science fiction and in, well, real life, is that the dystopias are coming from private companies. They are doing things that we would we would instantly compare to Big Brother if it was happening from our government. It's, um, you know, the way Facebook sells your data, the way Google sells your data, it's, it's all very much, you know, we've allowed it to happen because in the U.S. the threat comes from government and not from private industry. And I think that's what's so insidious, you know, about the, the cult of the entrepreneur is that by convincing everyone to think of themselves as entrepreneurs, that they can make themselves entrepreneurs, what they're actually doing is uh, assenting to this deeply uh, bad system of, of social arrangements and economic arrangements that fosters inequality, fosters oppression, uh, and maintains uh, oppressive, uh, you know, social hierarchies. And, you know, we, by being entrepreneurs – uh, you know, we assent to the the perpetuation of the system. I think that's as good a place as any to take a break. Um, we'll try to be less bleak when we come back. Your clip, a jobs maximizer. You execute opportunity by pivoting towards your listening network. Join the punching out downline and amplify your social infrastructure. Be a venture anti-capitalist. Join the multi-level socialist inverted pyramid that is punching out. Listen on SoundCloud and iTunes. Share us on Facebook and Twitter. Punching out because a gig economy is a rigged economy. Welcome back to Punching Out. Um, one thing I wanted to get to today is how this myth, this story about the entrepreneur is something that has bipartisan approval in this country. Um, in this state, we have a Democratic governor who's Perhaps his most famous program has been something called Startup New York, which offers businesses the opportunity to not pay taxes for 10 years after starting up. It is very much pitched towards these entrepreneur types, and it hasn't really succeeded. If you look at the numbers, they I think it's been something like millions or billions of dollars spent to create hundreds of jobs, if that. Um, and in the 2016 campaign, you know, the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, one of her proposals was to offer free public tuition for entrepreneurs. And it's something that the Democrats very much have adopted recently, I think we can say. I, th I think one of the, the guiding themes of this episode is just how hollow, how empty that idea of entrepreneur is it's it's a it's a plastic meaning it has no fixed definition it basically just means whoever has power and has used that power to pickpocket either the public treasury in the case of startup new york or for the most part you know the the work and the creativity and the talents of uh, the people downline of you know the top of the pyramid it's in many ways these sort of policies are sort of a a giveaway or a favor to sort of the Silicon Valley elites and the tech elites that are often donors to the Democratic Party. Right. Yeah. Let's undermine the idea that these are, again, self-made men or this is a meritocracy. These are people who were born rich. They were born on third base, think they hit a triple, um, and now they're uh, infesting, uh, you know, the top levels of government. Um, and while this may be a fairly recent addition to the Democratic Party's ethos, it has always been present in the Republican Party, which cannot say business owner without inserting small in front of it. It's a reflexive tick of theirs that sort of gets to the idea of the entrepreneur as a start. And in their recent tax bill, much ballyhooed, they have created a carve-out which allows 
these entrepreneurs to get an exemption, a lower tax rate on income that comes through, passed through businesses, which essentially is a fancy word for profit that goes to the owner of the company rather than shareholders. And it's, and so you have two parties that very much disagree on a lot of things, but on this issue, they are seemingly united. And it's worth pointing out too uh, that these people are in power. Uh, people who are involved in multi-level marketing schemes are overrepresented in the cabinet. Betsy Davos is the most notable example. Uh, she she married into the the Amway fortune. Her brother Eric Prince, uh, you know, started uh, arguably one of the more evil of these these startups, Blackwater, a private mercenary firm. Um, Ben Carson had an MLM. Donald Trump had an MLM. Uh, you know, these are everywhere in the party. They're, they're get-rich-quick schemes for the already rich. So a lot of what we've talked about today has been sort of abstract-seeming. It's stories and myths. But these stories and myths create the narratives that shape our public policy, and those policies have real impacts. And when the policy is shaped by a narrative like this, the effect is, well, not great. Well, yeah, the, the policies provide, you know, the material grounding for the perpetuation of these myths. You know, when you have a federal government uh, in every facet promoting this free enterprise system, these neoliberal structures, uh, it allows, you know, it validates and uh, provides support for uh, these companies that make up the entrepreneurship industry. So whether you want to you know, talk about Facebook or Uber, whether you want to talk about the self-help aspect, the books or the seminars, uh, you know, they're all uh, feeding off of these, uh, these policies that promote, uh, you know, direct investment or tax breaks or whatever it is that uh, foster entrepreneurship. We've been comfortable describing these things as myths, but why do they persist then? I mean, if there's so little evidence to suggest that, you know, entrepreneurship is a route to collective success. Why is America as a country so committed to this idea? Um, part of the reason I think that this myth has been perpetuated is its um, pervasiveness in our educational system. Um, I went to NYU and they have a nice little business school there called Stern, which um, I do believe Jared Kushner went to as for some grad work, um, but it kind of, you know, you, you'd go to s in front of the business school and you'd see all these, th these like legions of kids getting out of taxis in like full business suits at like age 18 and it's, and it and you know, they're all going to classes where they're being taught that entrepreneurship is the way to go business you know, you're going to be a CEO someday. And I mean, these are people that are not self-starters, but I'm sure they're being, that kind of rhetoric is being repeated to them. And, um, you know, RIT has an entrepreneurship major. These, these kind of educational structures um, reinforce the ideas around this. And I can only imagine how having a uh, secretary of education like Betsy DeVos will add to that. I mean, when you talk about charter schools, I think, a lot of the sort of tech language often surrounds them. They are disruptive. They innovate. They, you know, offer new opportunities that in past generations perhaps everyone would have had. Well, they're disrupting. They're disrupting public schools. <laughs> One of the most, you know, valuable assets that our society has, unfortunately. One of the few successful achievements of the American project was our public school system, uh, and it's being disrupted and amwayified into just another downline for uh, profit streams to escalate upward. In that um, article you had mentioned about uh, LuLaRoe, it sort of gets into sort of there's a been a hollowing out of middle America and rural America over the past couple decades and no surprise those areas have been ripe for this sort of scheme to work it's um they're, they're frontiers again to get back to that self-made man ideology um it's when you have this pervasive poverty this 
sort of stagnation of wealth and wages in large swaths of the country, including here in Rochester, it creates the foundations for a myth like be your own boss, you know, go outside the bounds of normal work to become an entrepreneur to really flourish, I think. Part of it is also there's this like, there's the middle class that used to be so robust that's now kind of falling apart a little bit and they're they're watching themselves fall but and they're not sure how to how to fix that and so these kind of empty promises and the, the this myth that they're fed it kind of feels like that's the way out even though as we know there there are giant systems at work that are you know very difficult to escape in that way it goes back to the system is the problem, not the people themselves. Because if we continue to perpetuate this idea that you know individuals only have to work harder, we are going to get a society where that teaches that individuals only have to work harder. And all of the policy effects of that rhetoric, it means slashing welfare, it means slashing public benefits, it means slashing public education in the hopes that people will be forced to strive harder to make ends meet and just yeah so a lot of what we've seen in the rhetoric like what uh what amanda read and what you know we've all been talking about generally is the they're tapping into basic human needs like the need for community the need for connection uh the need to uh live an independent autonomous productive life none of these needs are met by by capitalism so instead of meeting these needs, what they do is substitute in uh, the rhetoric of entrepreneurship. Uh, so instead of community, you have networks and the downlines. Instead of uh, instead of religion or you know community, what you have is the business, Amway or uh, you know the the, 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 the the what I'm looking for the messianic uh, cult figure of you know Elon Musk or something like that. Uh, substituting in for you know the possibilities of this world and uh, what it does it is actually constrains uh, possibilities by presenting them as you know opportunities and it's an extremely convenient propaganda um, mechanism for the upper class to kind of um, convince like convince the lower class that you know, stuff might be tough right now. You know, you may be falling down. You may think you're falling down the hole, but if you just try a little harder, work a little harder, you know, become more of an entrepreneur, you can make it out. And by your own grit and your own um, industriousness, I guess. And you know, we've we've kind of explored the idea that that's that's a kind of a myth and a scam. And but like we said before, we need that. Um, to keep going. Yeah, I think to some extent there, the necessity of the myth comes from below just as much as from the top. Obviously, these myths serve capital. They serve the owners and the entrepreneurs at the expense of the rest of us who can only strive to be that. But to some extent, I think there are people who see the inequality in society and they grow up in such an unequal society and their only sort of mechanism to explain that is to say, well, of course, these people must have worked harder because the alternative to believing that is bleak and it's a sort of hopelessness. If, if you come to the realization that all this wealth on one end is unearned and the misery of the rest of us is also unearned, then what can you do about that? Yeah, it, it substitutes uh, a power, you know, a, a, an illusion of power uh, for the powerlessness you know, a lot of us experience in our, our everyday existence under these, you know, these structures of capitalism. It gives us an out, uh, you know, be an entrepreneur, work hard, uh, you too will escape um, but of course, as I think was as we've established, that's a impossible. It, it doesn't happen. Nobody 
gets rich from Amway except the Davos family. Nobody gets rich from Uber except the the venture capitalists who invented invested first in Uber. And even then, maybe not even so clear uh, anyway. Um, so I guess maybe we wrap up. What what are the what are the solutions here? Is that something we want to talk about? Yeah, um, I think. I mean, in order to sort of shatter these myths, we need to well provide alternatives. We need to provide a space where you know entrepreneurship isn't the only route out of poverty. Where we have this sort of a more collective approach to the problems rather than. Uh, pinning all the problems on the individuals themselves mm-hmm. who suffer them to also solve them. Yeah, if we're looking at this as a as a problem of struggle between, for example, I don't know, classes, um, you know, we, we might come to a better systemic solution that involves um, kind of inverting, like we've said, inverting that pyramid and understanding that if we work together as a class, we can determine our future and not have our future dictated to us. What's, what strikes me through the discussion is that so much of entrepreneurship is based on that networking, that idea that you're still working with other people, you're still selling to other people. Um, so what, you, what we get away from is this idea of commodifying our relationships and instead of using those same relationships that are you know, an inherent part of being a human uh, to sell goods and to sell you know, nonsense is to... Uh, turn those communities, turn those networks toward building solidarity, building collectives, um, achieving power and achieving economic prosperity that way. And the thought occurs to me that as we talk about sort of collective solutions, we discussed earlier how the majority of these entrepreneurs and these people who take part in Amway and even the people who start up their own companies, they fail. They do not meet their goals and I mean, most businesses close after, what is it, two or three years? Yeah. Um, And it seems to me that if we are committed truly to the idea of helping people take those risks, it would behoove us to make them less risky, to have a safety net that allows people to, you know, not fear for their health insurance if their business goes under, to have a sort of... a minimal basis that people have so that they aren't going out on a limb at the risk of losing everything if they get suckered into Amway or LuLaRoe and end up, you know, in over their heads. Yeah, people people want to live autonomous lives. People, you know, there is something to being your own boss. I'd certainly phrase it differently, but the idea is the same. You want to be an independent person who can use their creativity, can use their talent, uh, for not only their own benefit, but the benefit of their, you know, their neighbors and their community. And the way you achieve that is by building social solidarities, by building structures of, uh, of support, um, through which people can, you know, if they fail or if they, uh, you know, through no fault of their own can't succeed, they can still be human. They can still live a, a life of, you know, achievement autonomy. I think, you know, as we talk about the many people who are exploited by this myth, it's, you know, I mean, the solution to their problems is collective. It's, I mean, whether it's Uber drivers, I mean, if they had a union the way taxi drivers do. Or better yet, if they owned Uber, you know, if the drivers owned it collectively uh-huh. instead of these venture capitalists, uh, then you cut out the middlemen and maybe you make money out of it. There's a way out of these problems that both parties, I don't think, is willing to look towards. And um, so this has been a long discussion, and I think it's been a productive one. Um, I'm Ryan. I'm Amanda. And I'd like to, before I leave, give a shout-out to uh, my boy James and the Northeastern University grad students. Uh, We are sharing your struggle, Godspeed, and your quest to achieve union recognition. I'm Rich. Goodbye. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. 
Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.